following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the third chapter of Zephaniah's prophecy, the book of Zephaniah in chapter 3. Zephaniah, as you know by now, is towards the end of the Old Testament. He is known as one of the minor prophets, one of the minor prophets, not because his message is insignificant or light but because his message compared to some of the lengthier prophetic books, such as Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah, is relatively short and to the point. Uh, As I've stated before, whether in this series or in our series through Malachi a few years back, Zephaniah is a minor prophet with a message that can bring major profit to our souls if we take his message to heart. I'd like to begin by reading in your hearing Zephaniah chapter 3. And so as always, it's with an incredible sense of privilege and honor and gratitude that I invite you as the people of God and those of you who are not God's people to hear and heed the life-imparting, faith-sustaining, hope-arousing words of the triune God. Zephaniah chapter 3. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate, without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out my indignation upon them, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, 
I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies. Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning, we come to the end of Zephaniah's prophecy regarding the coming day of Yahweh, which I've entitled this series. A day the scripture describes as a day of unbearable judgment for all who despise the God of heaven. It's a day of unfathomable joy for those whose hearts have been transformed to treasure and glorify the God of heaven. It will be a day of doom and gloom and weeping and gnashing of teeth for some, but a day of delight and glory and celebration and liberation for others. It depends which side of the line you're standing on as it relates to Christ. It all depends on where you stand in relation to the coming king of glory. Paul The apostle, in his letter to the Philippians, refers to this day three times as the day of Jesus Christ. Perhaps the most helpful way of understanding the meaning of the day of the Lord, as we read about it in the prophets and even in the New Testament, is to compare that day to the era that we now live in. It's the day of man right now. Or to be more accurate, it's the day of fallen man Man appears to be at center stage in this world. Man appears to be in control. 
Man appears to be dominating this world. Man seeks to determine what good and evil is. It's man who seeks to define what truth is. Man appears to be the highest authority in the universe. This is the day of man, fallen man, man enslaved to sin, man ruined because of sin, man in love with sin, man blinded by sin, man inventing more ways to sin, man giving approval to fellow man to sin, and man dead in sin. This is the day of man. But as the scriptures declare, the day of man will come to an end. In fact, the intrusion of the day of the Lord has already occurred. When, you might say, in the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, his arrival 2,000 years ago inaugurated the day of the Lord. Oh, it appeared that man prevailed when he crucified the Lord of glory, but this was all part of God's plan. You see, as those early Christians in the book of Acts chapter 4 said to God in the form of a prayer, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of, the, of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, our Lord's righteous life, his substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection, his triumphant, glorious ascension to the right hand of God inaugurated the day of the Lord and it essentially tipped the hourglass over as it relates to the day of man. And what God is doing in this period between the inauguration of the day of the Lord and the consummation of the day of the Lord is gathering and preparing a people who will be ready for the great consummation of the day of the Lord when the day of man is once and for all brought to an end. That's what God is doing in this interim period, gathering and preparing a people for his son. And the question you need to ask yourself this morning is, are you among the number that God has gathered and is presently preparing for this glorious day? Listen to what Paul says concerning those God has gathered and is currently preparing for this coming day. Philippians 1.6 I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 10 of Philippians 1. It is my prayer, says the apostle, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And then finally, in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Prophets 
foresaw this day. The apostles anticipated this day and existed essentially in their ministries to prepare God's people for this day. That's why I asked, are you among the number that God has gathered and is presently preparing for this glorious day? Now, please note that I did not just ask if you're in the number that God has gathered for this day. I asked if you were also being presently prepared by God for this day. In other words, is your love, as Paul alludes to here in Philippians chapter 1, is your love for fellow Christians, those who name the name of Christ like you do, is your love abounding more and more? Or have you defaulted into a place of self-preservation, refusing to give yourself, refusing to give your time, your resources, your words to building up other Christians? Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Now, I'm not just referring to a head knowledge that comes through podcasts and books and listening to sermons. I'm talking about a personal, intimate, practical knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or has that been put on the back burner in your life? The Apostle Paul spoke of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And he spoke of his longing to know him and the power of his resurrection. Is that you this morning? Is God preparing you by the sanctifying power of his word and his spirit and his fatherly discipline to ensure that you yourself are pure and blameless and innocent in the day of Christ? You don't want to be like the many who assume that just because they've been gathered and drawn in by the gospel that you're actually ready for the coming day of Yahweh. You see, friends, it isn't enough just to be gathered and drawn in by the truth of the gospel. I say that again, it's not enough to be gathered in by the truth of the gospel. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 13 that weeds grow alongside wheat and out of the same fertile ground. He taught that the kingdom of heaven is like a net cast into the sea that gathers fish of every kind. And when the net is full, men drag it ashore and sort the fish into containers, the good fish, but they throw away the bad. And Jesus says it's going to be that way at the end of the age. There will be thousands and thousands of people who have been gathered in, brought in by the gospel net, drawn to shore by the net of the gospel, but not, but not everyone gathered by that gospel net will actually be kept and brought into the kingdom. You see, the gospel, the truth, the message of salvation and forgiveness and justification, it draws a number of people externally. Those who hear of forgiveness because they have a guilty conscience, it draws those people. It draws people who truly do desire to be reconciled to God, and they're born again, and they're redeemed, and they're regenerated. But the gospel also attracts people who just like to be around nice people. The gospel attracts all kinds of people, but in the end, there will be a grand sorting of the types of people that have been gathered. In Matthew 22, it's not just those who have responded to the invitation to the wedding feast and find themselves gathered in the wedding hall who actually 
sharer in the joy of the king and his son. You have to be arrayed, Jesus taught, in the wedding garment approved by the king, or else you'll find yourself bound hand and foot and thrown into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not enough to just be in the gathered assembly. It's not enough to put it as plainly as I can this morning. It's not enough to be part of the gathered assembly. It's, it's not enough to call yourself a Christian and to try to convince others, mom and dad, friends and family, that you're a Christian. You must, as Paul says, be actively shining as lights in this dark world by holding fast to the word of life if you're going to be ready on the day of Christ and for the day of Christ. Some Christian circles today and since the Reformation really emphasize God's saving work for us while neglecting to talk about God's saving work in us. While others on the other side of the spectrum, obsess over God's saving work in us while failing to magnify God's saving work for us in the gospel. We want to emphasize both. Church history is full of examples of imbalance. People emphasizing this good thing over here at the expense of not expounding upon this good thing over here. Yes, we want to rest in the objective work of Christ for us. But friends, we also need to examine ourselves to determine if we are in the faith and if the Spirit of God is accomplishing His saving, sanctifying work in us. We affirm and we acknowledge that our salvation comes from the triune God. The Father predestines us, the Son purchases us, and the Spirit purifies us. And all those who have been predestined by the Father are purchased by the Son. And all those who are purchased by the Son will be progressively purified and sanctified by the Spirit in order to prepare them for the coming day of the Lord. As we come to this third and final chapter in Zephaniah, we also come to the brightest part of the prophecy this prophet who prophesied in the southern kingdom of Judah during the time of King Josiah, roughly 600 years before Christ, has warned the people that if they refused to repent and turn to Yahweh, they too, like the nations around them, will be swept away by his wrath. More than any other prophet, Zephaniah has warned of the coming day of Yahweh, referring to the day of the Lord at least 18 times in these three chapters, 13 of those references being found in chapter 1 alone. As we consider this final chapter this morning, I'd like to present it to you in five sections. In verses 1 to 7, we see the rebellion God denounces. In verse 8a, if you will, we see the response God demands. And then in the rest of verse 8, we see the retribution God decrees. Moving along in verses 9 through 13, we're going to consider the renewal God disperses. And then in the final section, verses 14 through 20, we'll consider the restoration God describes. 
And so we'll begin by considering verses 1 to 7, the rebellion God denounces. Notice how he denounces the rebellion of the city of Jerusalem. Notice how it begins in verse 1 with the word, woe. This stands in contrast to the prior woe that we saw in chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. The first woe, in other words, in chapter 2, was for the surrounding nations of Israel, of Jerusalem. This woe, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, is actually brought in to the people and for the people of Israel. So it's as if God pronounces the judgment on Israel's surrounding nations, and now he narrows it in and he focuses on Judah, Jerusalem. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. He describes her in terms of rebellion, defilement, and oppression. She is rebellious in that God says one thing, she does another thing. She is defiled in that sin defiles. Sin never purifies. Sin never makes right the hearts of God's people internally. She is dirty. She is defiled. And she has actually become one who is oppressive. Notice, the oppressing city. This is ironic here because all throughout the history of Israel, she, Israel, was the oppressed one. And yet, in her defilement, in her rebellion against God, she has actually become the one oppressing, not oppressing the nations around them, but oppressing the citizens within the kingdom. There's corruption. Verse 2 says, and this is very descriptive of, this is a summary really of Judah in Zephaniah's day. Notice verse 2. She listens to no voice. Referring to the voice of the prophets. The prophets come. They bring the message. Thus says the Lord, thus declares Yahweh, and she does not listen. Jesus spoke of this, that that Jerusalem was the city that had the prophets sent to her, and yet she continued to reject her prophets. Number two, she accepts no correction. She's always in the right. We were speaking this morning about the book of Judges, and how they were always seeking to do what was right in their own eyes. Not only are there people who always do what's right in their own eyes, but they are are always right in their own eyes. And they receive no correction. All Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for correction. We need to be corrected constantly. Even as regenerate people, we need to be corrected. Who can discern his errors? The psalmist said in Psalm 19. Who can truly, in and of himself, apart from the intervening grace and discernment given by the Spirit of God, can discern his errors? We can. And so we need God's word and his spirit to correct us. But Israel, in this day, accepted no correction. Number three, She does not trust in the Lord. After all he had brought her through, bringing her out of Egypt, bringing her manna, bringing her quail, bringing her countless 
memories of his steadfast love and his covenant loyalty, she still did not trust in the Lord. And fourthly, it says here of her, she, Jerusalem, the people as a whole, does not draw near to her God. This was interesting because the reason God had selected Israel out of the nations, out of all the nations, was that he would come and draw near to her. And so it's almost as if God is saying, the very reason I pulled you out of Egypt so that we would be one near to each other, he says, you fail to draw near to me. And you know what happens when you read this in its reversal? If you are not drawing near to the Lord, if you are not trusting in God, you're going to be a man, a woman that never, ever receives correction, never receives God's discipline, never accepts any kind of um, correction. That was her problem. Moving on in verse 3, notice what, well, before that, we go there. I want you to read something Turn to your left to go to the end of the book of Proverbs. We're going to see what it's like to receive no correction. Go to Proverbs chapter 1. Because this is not a new thing. It wasn't a new thing in Israel. It's not a new thing today. The Proverbs address this in great detail. God through King Solomon. In Proverbs chapter 1 verse 20 we have a picture of God's wisdom calling out to humanity. Wisdom cries aloud in the street, in the market. She raises her voice at the head of the noisy street. She cries out at the entrance of the city gates. She speaks. In other words, God is saying, I have made known my wisdom to you, my people. It's not hidden. It's not any kind of Gnostic mystery. I've made my will known. I have told you, O man, what is good. Verse 22, how long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? And notice what God in his wisdom says. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you refuse to listen. I have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock, says wisdom, when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. That's exactly, exactly what the people in Zephaniah's day were about to experience. Because they refused to listen to God's word, his voice, his correction, his discipline, they were about to eat the fruit of their own ways. In other words, to use the language of Galatians, they were about to reap what they sowed. You sow a life of not being able to be corrected. You sow a life of not drawing near to God. You sow a life of not trusting in God. You sow a life of never listening to God's word. You will reap eternal corruption. And that's exactly what's happening here in Zephaniah's day. 
All throughout the Proverbs, we see that failure to receive correction leads to death, but openness to correction leads to life again and again. And now back to Zephaniah chapter 3, what he does now is he, he gives us a breakdown of the different types of people in the city. Verse 3, the officials. What are they? Roaring lions. A word that's used later on in the Bible to refer to Satan. A roaring lion. They devour. The officials, those who are in charge of the city, all they do is devour. They take, they devour, they create chaos. Her judges are evening wolves, corrupt. They come out in the dark and they kill the weak. That's what wolves do. That was their judges. There was no justice being upheld in this day. The officials were corrupt. The judges were corrupt. They leave nothing till the morning. And notice verse 4. We move into the religious realm, not just the civil realm, but the religious realm. Verse 4 says, Her prophets are fickle, unreliable, shifting like the wind. They're not anchored down. They have no firm convictions. Whatever the flavor of the day is, that's what they preach. Whatever tickles the ears, that's what they preach. They're fickle. Notice he says treacherous men. That is, they're traitors. You realize that that's how God views false prophets and false messengers? Is that they've been given truth, but then they become treacherous, traitors against the God who gave them his truth, gave them his word. And instead of proclaiming it, they pervert it. Instead of expounding it, they do violence to it. They're traitors, treacherous men. Notice the priests as well. The priests profane what is holy. The priests in that day take the, were taking the holy things of God and treating them as if they were just common things. Treating the law, treating the sacrifices, treating the reading and singing and praising of God as just common things. The incense is just a common altar. Flavor of Zephaniah's day. Not only that, it says here that the priests do violence to the law, the very ones who were supposed to be upholding the law, teaching the law, expounding and explaining the law, walking in the light of the law, were actually doing violence to the law by not keeping the law of the day. Moving on in verse 5, compares the officials and the judges, and the prophets, and the priests with one who is not corrupt. He gives a perfect picture of God in verse 5. The Lord within her is righteous. You see, God, in the midst of all this perversion and corruption, still dwelled in the midst of his people as he promised. And yet, no one is imitating his righteousness. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. There's not a hint of injustice in him. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. In other words, he is consistently righteous, consistently just, consistently fair in his decisions and in his judgments and in his decrees. This could be a reference, by the way, to the faithfulness that he displays 
the justice he displays in the rising of the sun and the setting of the sun each day, consistently holding up his design and his order. He's consistent. But look at the end of verse 5. But the unjust knows no shame. So the picture of Jerusalem is that they were shameless. The priests are perverting all that is holy, and there's no shame. The officials are oppressing people, devouring people like lions, and there's no shame. The picture here is very, very dark if you have not noticed. You have a society of people who have been called out by God, commissioned by God, equipped by God to know him and proclaim his truth to the nations. And yet here they are now, a shameless nation. There's no shame. There's no blushing when it comes to sin. They're shameless. And notice how God moves on in verses 6 and 7 to describe his intention in bringing destruction to their surrounding neighbors. Verse 6 says, I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. We saw that in chapter 2. He was going to make these cities desolate, and he did in the midst of Israel. They saw these nations being leveled around them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. God says, verse 7, I, surely you will fear me. I said, surely you will fear me. In seeing the destruction of your neighbors, surely you will fear me. When destruction has come up to your front doorstep, surely you'll fear me. Now, this is not God saying, I thought maybe they would fear me, and then God's wrong here. He's expressing his intent in bringing the destruction all around them. His intent was that that, that, that would get their attention, that the cities to the east and the north and the south being laid waste would be an eye-opener for his people in Judah. That's what he's saying here. I said, surely you will fear me. Surely you will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. You see, she received no correction and she took heed to no examples of those being cut off for their sin. Can you imagine if we were this, we were this little nation and we were hearing about these powerful nations all around us being destroyed by the word of God. God, by his word, prophesying their destruction, and then we see it happen. Prophesying their destruction, and then we see it happen. Prophesying their judgment, and then we see it happen before our eyes. It's as if judgment is, 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 is closing in on us. And what happens? Instead of turning to God, it says here, they were all the more eager to make their deeds corrupt. They were too far gone. Their, hard, their, their hearts were, were too hard. Their consciences were so seared. That was the state of the people. That is, in verses 1 to 7, the rebellion God denounces. Now look at verse 8. The response God demands. The response God demands Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. That's the one overarching command in this chapter, by the way. Wait for me. Wait for me. That's what he's calling them to do. Now, he's referring to the people in chapter 2 and verse 3. Look at that with me really quick. 
chapter 2, verse 3. The same people who are being called upon to wait on the Lord are those in chapter 2, verse 3, that were given the command, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. He's addressing the faithful remnant. They are small, they are few, but they are present. And he says, therefore, wait for me. You who are willing to listen to me, wait for me. You who do receive my correction, wait for me. You who do trust in me, wait for me. You who do draw near to me, wait for me. Wait for me. This is very similar to what we find in Habakkuk chapter 2. In verse 2, Habakkuk was also a prophet that was telling of the coming destruction of the Babylonians. The Lord answered Habakkuk and said, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to its end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God is saying, I've, I've, I've given the command to destroy this people for their sin. If it seems like it's far off, just wait for it. It's going to happen. It will surely happen. Isaiah chapter 8, 17, very similar. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Interesting, right? You're part of this nation that's about to be crushed, demolished. And God says, you who are faithful, wait for me. Why would they wait? Why, why, why would, is it like, Lord, are we waiting so that we can be destroyed? No, remember the promise. Remember the possibility of mercy back in chapter 2, verse 3? It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. That's what they were to wait for. God somehow delivering the remnant from the judgment. God knows how to deliver his people out of punishment when he comes for the wicked. All throughout the scriptures, he teaches us that. This is interesting because from a New Testament perspective, this is what we're called to do as well. We're called to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. We are called to pray in the Holy Spirit. We are called to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That's what we're called to do. We're called to keep ourselves in the love of God. But all of that Jude portrays as, as waiting on the Lord. It, it doesn't mean inactivity. It means seeking. To wait for God means to, in this context, of waiting for a judgment to come. It, waiting it means that you're acknowledging that his judgments are just. His coming judgment is just. When God says, I'm going to consume this world, this whole earth, in the fire of my holy jealousy... We as the people of God say, Lord, your judgments are just and we will wait for that day because we know that you will deliver your people from that coming judgment. To wait for God means to look for God, to look to him. To wait for God means to watch for him. It means to hope in him. It means to purify yourself even as he is pure. That's what it means to wait. When you know something or someone is coming, you posture yourselves in anticipation of that someone or that something. If you know that a tornado is coming, you wait with a certain specific type of anticipation and preparation. If you know that God is coming, you wait humbly, knowing that if he's coming, as we mentioned recently, 
the illustration of you know taking your lawnmower through the, the through, through the lawn at a certain height, and you adjust that blade at a certain height, and everything higher than that is going to be cut off. And so, if you were a, some form of a little creature in that in that in that uh, lawn, you would make sure that you were lower than that always. If if, if everything above above here is going to be cut off. You lower yourself, and that's exactly what God's calling the people to do. I'm coming to destroy everything that is lofty and proud and arrogant. And so they were commanded to wait low to the ground, so to speak, spiritually. They were commanded to humble themselves, to listen to God's voice, to accept his correction, to trust in him, to draw near to him. And that's our commission as well as we wait for the day of the Lord. You see, sometimes we put this big big unjust separation between the Old and the New Testament. The same day of Yahweh that Zephaniah is preaching is the same day that we are waiting for. It's come. It's been inaugurated in the, com- in the coming of Christ, but it's not yet consummated. We're waiting for that consummation. We're waiting for this very day that we are reading about in Zephaniah's prophecy. And then this command to wait There are two reasons given in the text as to why they were to wait and what they were to wait for. Number one, the coming punishment. That's verse 8b. And then two, the coming purification in verses 9 through 20, the coming renewal. And this brings us to our third point this morning. In the rest of verse 8, the retribution God decrees The retribution God decrees. Notice what he says here. For my decision, my decree, unchanging, my decision is to gather nations. This is why you are to wait. Because my decision is to assemble kingdoms. Interesting verbiage here. Assembling kingdoms, you you think of a military lineup. God is going to gather nations and he's going to assemble the kingdoms. For what purpose? Look at verse 8. To pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, this is the second time he's mentioned that, all the earth shall be consumed. You see, no longer was he assembling nations to come against Israel. Now he points us to the very end of time where God gathers the nations, all the nations of the earth, assembles all the kingdoms not to attack Israel, but to stand in judgment, to receive their just reward. This is interesting because Jesus uses almost identical language. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. This is exactly what Zephaniah is talking about. The gathering of the nations in judgment. Before him, the Son of Man, will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left. This is exactly the day we are waiting for. The day of the Lord. 
Joel spoke of this as well. Joel 3, verse 11. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. What a glorious day this is going to be. When all the kingdoms in their pomp and all their glory are humbled before the Lord and there's no military power, there's no military might, there's no military strategic planning, any of that to be able to resist this coming judgment. He will assemble kingdoms. He says, I will pour out my indignation. You see, friends, in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says that God as people continue to resist his will, continue to despise his glory, continue to exchange his glory, continue to trade his truth for lies, there is something happening in their lives. They are storing up wrath for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's true, friends. Everyone in this room is storing up something. You are either storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy by living joyfully in the fear of Christ, or you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. Isn't it a mercy that instead of God striking people immediately when they sin, he exercises forbearance and patience. He lets them continue to live. He knows they perhaps will never turn to him, but yet he still continues to give them sunshine. He still continues to provide them with friendships. He still continues to provide them with good things to enjoy in this world. Good things that are intended to lead them to repentance. And yet on that day, he will no longer exercise any patience. No more forbearance. Like a storm that has been gathering for hundreds of years, he will unleash his righteous fury upon his enemies. And there will be no one to be able to lay down a charge of injustice or unfairness. No, friends, God gives people exactly what they deserve for their rebellion against him and against all that is good. All my burning anger, he says, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth will be consumed. We get a picture of this in Revelation chapter 6 at the opening of the sixth seal. John says, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The earth, the moon, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who? can stand. You see, in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth will be consumed. Peter spoke of this in chapter 3. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Listen, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, friends, God is coming in holy jealousy to bring final retribution upon all who hate his glory and hate his people and hate his truth. I mentioned last, last time I preached that God's jealousy is his zealous protectiveness of all that is rightfully his, his name, his glory, his word, his people, his soul, right to receive worship and ultimate obedience, his world, his city, all that is his, his zealous protectiveness of all that is beautiful and good all that is abused so often in our world. Moving on in verses 9 to 13, we see now the renewal God disperses. The renewal God disperses. This is the second reason there to wait, by the way. The first reason why they should wait on the Lord is that he will deal with all the rebellious of this world, all the rebellious nations, all the rebellious kingdoms, that's reason for waiting, number one. Reason for waiting, number two, is this coming renewal. Look at verse nine. For at that time, God says, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. This is almost the reversal of Babel, the Tower of Babel, where they were gathered in rebellion to make a name for themselves. And what did God do? He confused their languages gave them different languages, so to speak, and then dispersed them. And what we're seeing here is a reversal of that. God says, in the day of the Lord, which I'm arguing has already been inaugurated in the coming of Christ, he's going to gather the people with one speech, one language. And notice the purpose. That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. That's the purpose. He's coming to purify the speech of the peoples. And notice this language here, peoples. That's hardly ever used of Israel. God is referring now to the Gentile nations, the, the peoples of the earth. Why should the remnant of Israel wait on Yahweh? Because there's a remnant of elect Gentiles all around the world. In that day, God will change their speech, purify their speech, so that what? so that they call on the name of the Lord. Who takes the initiative in salvation? It's God. Why do people call on the name of the Lord? Because he changes their speech to a pure speech. You see how his purifying grace is the first step before anyone calls upon the name of the Lord? By the way, calling on the name of the Lord is associated often with the day of the Lord. Joel chapter two, quoted by Peter in Acts chapter two, in that day, people will call upon the name of the Lord. Why do people call on the name of the Lord? Because God, in his purifying grace, gives them a pure speech, one language, so to speak. He gives them his spirit. And what does his spirit do? His spirit calls on God as Abba, Father, calling upon the name of the Lord. 
that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. So in other words, what is God after in the world? He is after worshipers. Jesus taught us that in John chapter 4. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. And what does he do? He changes their speech so that they call upon him. And not only do they call upon him, but with one accord, all these peoples whose languages were changed to, to one language to call upon Christ are now serving him in one accord. That's awfully close to what we read about in the book of Acts, where God pours out his spirit. People are calling upon the name of the Lord. And then you find them all with one accord, devoting themselves to the prayers, to the breaking of bread, to the apostles' teaching, to serving Christ with one accord. So what we see here that God is predicting through the prophet, prophesying a day where the peoples of the earth, the Gentiles, will be brought in, they will call on the name of the Lord, and they will serve him with one accord. A glorious unity of serving God, worshiping God. Moving on in verse 10, notice the further description. From beyond the rivers of Cush. Speaking of ancient Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. You see, friends, all throughout the Old Testament, we find that God has had a desire to bring in all the peoples of the earth. You remember in John chapter 11, it was said of Jesus that he died not just for the nation only, but he died to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. It's by Jesus' death that he gathers Gentiles into the fold. So now there is one fold, one flock, and one new people in place of the two. Notice that he calls them his worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones. They shall bring my offering. Now, this is strange language for us who are living in the New Testament because we're not bringing any kind of offerings, definitely not any kind of animal offerings, but what does the New Testament describe? Offerings of peace and righteousness and offerings of thanksgiving and praise. And so we see as Gentiles now, we are this fulfillment in a sense of bringing all these offerings of praise and thanksgiving to, to Yahweh. And by the way, I want you to turn and see something really quick. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Because this is so key in interpreting these Old Testament prophecies. Hebrews chapter 12. Beginning in verse 18, I want you to notice where we have come to as worshipers of Christ. He says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain... It shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's not what we've come to. In coming to Christ, that's not what we've come to. We've not come to Sinai. 
This is what we have come to. Not will come to, but this is what you already have come to as a believer. Look at verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Friends, if we had eyes to see what Scripture calls us to see, we would see that we have already come to this restored Jerusalem. We have already come to this city of the living God. We have already come to Mount Zion. So what the prophets foresaw, this restoration of Israel, this newly renewed people of Israel, this is exactly what Jesus brings us into, the city of the living God. Now, we, we know that there will be a consummation of this at the end of the book of Revelation where we see the city coming down, but we've already come to this city. We are already citizens of this city. We are already made members of this household of God. Now back to Zephaniah. My worshipers will bring my offering. Look at verse 11, another thing that God promises. Not only does he promise to change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech so that they all call on him and serve him with one accord and bring his offerings and worship him. But notice what he says. He promises the removal of shame, verse 11. On that day, you shall not be put to shame. Now, there's an interesting distinction between being put to shame and feeling shame. And that's the glory of the gospel. Oftentimes, we do feel ashamed of our sin. But God will not put us to shame for our sin. There's a difference. We should feel shame for the ways in which we rebel against God's word. And even when we do feel ashamed and we come to him in the spirit of Psalm 51 with a repentant heart, a broken heart, contrite heart, God says, I will no longer put you to shame. You deserve to be put to shame, but the good news of the gospel is that God will not put you to shame. And that's a thing you find in Romans chapter 10 as well. Those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved and none of them will be put to shame. This is glorious good news this is a glorious gospel on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me so again he's referring to the remnant the godly the humble of the land in that day for then i will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones and you shall no no longer be haughty in my holy Mountain, A great removal, a great purging, if you will, is going to take place in this day. What day? When people start calling on the name of the Lord. When there is a united people from all around the world, Gentiles, gospel age, serving him, worshiping him, bringing offerings of praise and thanksgiving in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ as we are a royal priesthood, offering holy sacrifices to God. He says in that day, I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. In other words, God throughout this entire age is removing from his true people the godless. This happens by church discipline. It happens by God awakening people to who's real and who's not. God is purging. 
from this city, this newly restored Israel, all those who were haughty and proud and humbling them, or rather leaving a humble people. Look at verse 12. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, a people meek, gentle, understanding that they deserve the outpouring of God's wrath, but have not been put to shame for the things of which they are ashamed because of the grace and covenant faithfulness of Yahweh who has come through to save his people. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. That's exactly descriptive of all who come to Christ. Hebrews chapter 7 says that we have come to take refuge in Jesus Christ. They shall seek refuge in his name, that is, in all that he has revealed himself to be in his glorious attributes. Verse 13 says, Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Going out on a limb here to say that I believe he's referring to regeneration, where God changes his people. No longer are they liars. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You see, do we still commit the sins mentioned in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11? Yes, but are we those things? No. He's given us new hearts, new minds, new identities. Do we still lie? Do we still sin? Grievously, yes. But he says that's not who you are anymore. And so the Christian life is about becoming who you already are, not becoming something that you're not. It's becoming who you are in Christ. God will regenerate a people so that they do no injustice. They speak no lies. Nor will there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. This is an already not yet reality, by the way. We are already transformed, but we anticipate the day when This new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, and in that city, God says, there will be no lying, there will be no curse. All that is wicked and cursed will be cast out of the city. So again, this is all what we call in theology, already, not yet, reality. Now, we come to the fifth and final point in the chapter the restoration God describes in verses 14 through 20. The restoration God describes, look at how he describes this coming restoration. Begins with praise. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. This is not singing, making melody in your hearts, even though we're called to do that in Ephesians. This is singing, making melody loud. People singing with our voices. O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, Rejoice and exult with all your heart. In other words, leave no, have no reservation. This is Zephaniah's message to the humble remnant of the land in that day. Leave no reservation. Exult, that is, triumph inwardly. Leap. Sing aloud with all your heart. Rejoice, O daughter of Jerusalem. Notice the reason, verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. This is ironic language because 
We just read earlier that he's about to unleash his judgments upon them. Woe to them, woe to them, woe to them. You're about to experience the fruit of your own doings. But now, as he refers to this future day, by the way, one of the key phrases in this chapter is in that day, in that day, in that day, on that day, on that day, on that day. God is pointing us to this future time when what? Remember? He's changing, purifying the people's speech so they call upon the name of the Lord in one accord, serving him, worshiping him. There's a a regenerating work that takes place where he removes lying from their characters. He removes deceit from their characters. They're bringing offerings or sacrificing to him. They're humble. They're lowly. They're seeking refuge in the name of the Lord. And I didn't touch on that, but it's a beautiful reality. Verse 13 says, For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Usually when the prophets, the minor prophets, speak of grazing language and lying down as, as, as a, as a, in a pasture like the flock, it's referring to salvation. Turn quickly with me to your left to go to Ezekiel 34. I want you to see something and how identical this language is in Ezekiel 34 and then how it compares to our good shepherd, Jesus Christ, in John chapter 10. Ezekiel 34 gives us this same picture, but from Ezekiel's vantage point. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Skip down to verse 20. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep because you push with side and shoulder and thrust all thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep. And now listen to this. And I will set up over them one shepherd my servant David. Problem is David has been long dead in Ezekiel's day. But we're talking about the descendant of David. Who is that? This is the Lord Jesus Christ. The opening verses in Romans chapter one talks about David, uh, Jesus as the offspring, the descendant of David, the son of David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I 
have spoken. So do you see, back in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 13, where he said, yeah, verse 13, where he says, they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. That's almost identical language to Ezekiel. And that's almost identical language to John chapter 10, where we read of Jesus as our good shepherd. In verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. You see, friends, this is ultimately pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ in his shepherd-like love towards his covenant people. Back to Zephaniah. We're talking about the restoration that God describes And he uses these four words, sing, shout, rejoice, exult with all your heart. The reason being is that verse 15, the Lord has taken away your judgments. So he shifts to the past tense now as if it's already happened. And God can speak this way because it's as good as done. God would come and in that day take away their judgments. How would he do that? How would he as the just and holy God of heaven and earth who does no injustice, how will he take away their judgments? Well, that's where Isaiah 53 comes into the picture. By judgment, the servant of Yahweh is taken away, pierced, not for his own transgressions, but for the transgressions of his people, crushed for their iniquities, chastised that they might be brought peace with God. I have taken away your judgments. He has cleared away your enemies. What does this mean? We tend to forget that these prophecies to Israel and the minor prophets, we tend to think they're so disconnected from the New Testament. We see this as a far off day when God's going to do all this stuff for Israel. Friends, forgetting that the first Followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Acts were all Jews. They're all Israelites. And he had just, in the book of Acts, had taken away their judgments at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he had cleared away the enemies of his people. What are, who are the enemies of his people? Are they flesh and blood merely? No, we read in Colossians chapter 2. That not only did Jesus cancel the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, but he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, he clears away the real enemies of his people. Death, demonic powers. That's what he did in his triumphant, victorious, substitutionary death. There is one more enemy to be destroyed by the way, and that's death. But guess what? Scripture addresses that too, and when that will be decisively defeated. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, death received its death blow in the resurrection of Christ, and, 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 and when Christ comes again to restore all his people, to, 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 to resurrect them once and for all, in that day will be said that death has died. You see, Christ is the one who comes and clears away the enemies of his people. Moving on in Zephaniah chapter 3, as we near the end, the king of Israel, verse 15, the Lord, 
is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. This is similar language to Zechariah chapter 9. And you compare that to John chapter 12 and the triumphal entry in the other gospels. And who is Jesus referred to as? Blessed is he, the king of Israel. Hosanna, the king of Israel. Jesus is the king of Israel. This is Jesus here who has come to dwell in the midst of us. Emmanuel, God with us. These verses are so Christocentric, it's unbelievable. It's glorious, though we know that all Scripture testifies of him. If only we have eyes to see it. If only we have a hermeneutic based on the New Testament to actually employ it while we read the Old Testament. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. Again, very similar language to the triumphal entry. The Lord your God, verse 17, is in your midst. On that day, what day? That future day, God will come and dwell in the midst of his people. This is God coming in the form of Christ, forever dwelling in the midst of his people. Emmanuel, God with us. And even though he left his first followers and went back to the right hand of his father, he said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And now we have, like Romans 8 says, the spirit of Christ dwelling with us who belong to Christ. He is with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. I am with you always, even to the end of the age, he says to his people. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Isn't this reminiscent of what we read in Luke chapter 15, the, par- the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. In all three accounts, we have this language. When the individual finds this lost sheep, he says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. In the instance of the lost coin, the lady says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Jesus says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. More joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And in the culminating parable of the prodigal son, the son comes to the father and says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and, and, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. You see, so many people think that the parable of the prodigal son is describing a backslider. He's not talking about backsliders. He's talking about people who come for the very first time and God receives them joyfully with celebration. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. And this is exactly the heart of God as we see it in Zephaniah chapter 3, rejoicing over his people, saving his people, rejoicing over them with gladness, and then quieting his people with his love. Isn't that what God does to his people? He quiets them with his love. He quiets their accusing consciences with his love reminding them that in the gospel and in the death of Christ, he bore their sin in his own body on the tree. 
and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, he quiets them with his love. And finally, in verse 17, he will exult over you with loud singing. Do you see the picture here is reversed? This whole section that began in verse 14, sing, shout, rejoice, exult. Those commands given to the people are now seen in their reverse order in that God is doing the shouting. God is doing the exulting. God is doing the rejoicing. God is doing the shouting. Verse 18, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. This is a strange prophecy. It could be referring to people in that day who, for whatever reason, were not able to make the gathering because, again, why would they have a gathering? The, the, the righteous people are mourning for the gathering, the, the, the festival, because the priests had already corrupt every, corrupted everything. The religious leaders had spoiled everything. And so they knew that this festival wasn't a pure festival. And he's saying, in that day, you're going to get what you were longing for. You're going to get what you were longing for and that you will be able to worship on my holy mountain. You will be able to celebrate when I remove this corruption from my city. Blessed are those who mourn for the festival. They will no longer suffer reproach. He goes on, he says, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Verse 19, behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame. Exactly what Jesus began to do in his first coming, healing the lame, the diseased, making them leap like calves from the stall. I will gather the outcast. That language is exactly coming out of the New Testament where Jesus sends his messengers to the highways and the byways to gather in all the outcasts, the unworthy, the undeserving. And I will change, second mention of the word change, by the way, I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. In other words, they're going to be a people who went from being ashamed of their sins to now praising God and rejoicing in God for the removal and salvation of their sins, from their sins. Verse 20, at that time, he says, I will bring you in. At that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. You see, God exalts his people in the midst of all that is loud and lofty and proud. You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you were mighty. He says the Lord has chosen the weak, the despised, to put to shame the things that are so lofty and big and important in this world. That's exactly what he's saying here. I will make you renowned and praised as my people among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. You see, God is going to restore Israel. And that is that restoration has begun in the newly restored people of God as we read about them in the New Testament. These initial... Israelites that came to know and treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only is it this, 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 uh, we, we tend to think of this being a purely physical thing. But as we read in Hebrews chapter 12, we've already come to this city. We're members of this city. God is restoring his, their fortunes before their eyes. I love that phrase. He could have left it out. 
He could have just said, I will restore your fortunes in that day. I will make everything new, make all things new, he says, before your eyes. In other words, you yourself are going to see it. You yourselves are going to be witnesses of my restoring power and transforming grace. When I change your speech to one speech, to call upon my name, to seek refuge in my name, to worship my name, to glory in my name. I'm going to remove your shame. I'm going to remove your judgments. How? How is that happening? I mean, I'm seriously asking, how does God remove the judgments and the shame of his people? He does it by the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ, who comes to die, take our place, bear our sin, bear our shame, carry it away as far as the east is from the west. So what are we called to do in the meantime, friends? We are called, like the people in Zephaniah's day, to continue to wait for the Lord. We wait in anticipation. We wait with purified eyes, purified hearts, waiting for this day. We wait, we grow, we encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near, considering how to stir up one another to love and good works, knowing that that day is drawing near. Friends, Paul says we prepare for this day by abounding more and more in love towards one another. The question we need to ask ourselves is, are we doing that? It's not just enough to be gathered Are we being prepared, progressively purified, sanctified by the Spirit of God as a bride is preparing herself for the coming of the bridegroom? Are we those people? Or have we just withdrawn from the love of the fellowship? Have we withdrawn and, uh, you know, defaulted to a place of self-preservation? I'm not going to pour out because I might get hurt here. I'm not going to reach out because I might get hurt. I'm not going to do this. That's that's self-preservation. He wants us to abound more and more in love all the more as we see the day drawing near. So let us, like the remnant of the godly in Zephaniah's day, seek the Lord, seek to humble ourselves, seek to draw near to our God, seek to accept correction, seek to listen to his voice, seek to trust in him, seek righteousness and humility. We know, based on the fuller revelation of God's word, that we will be hidden in Christ, our refuge, when the Lord pours out his fiery indignation upon his enemies. We will be hidden. That's the meaning of Zephaniah. The name Zephaniah means the Lord has hidden. He has hidden us in his son. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Let's stand.